Welcome to the Life is a Ceremony podcast by Petiti Institute. We're inspired to share practical insights to engage everyday life as an evolutionary journey. Every moment is an opportunity to practice. If you would like to send us a question or a comment or a donation, you're welcome to visit www.paititi-institute.org. That's www.paititi-institute.org. This episode is about the healing of trauma, understanding fragility, and awakening from the dream of separation via the evolutionary language of life, an essential link between the ancient psychological pandemic of Vetico and its modern counterpart. Hi, everybody. The medicine wheel that I had the vision of was from when we did the dream work, the Amazonian Jungian dream work. That map of the archetypes came through as that's how I want to teach my medicine wheel. And I've had the, took some time to sort of map those archetypes. And we've done serpent, jaguar, and eagle as the Peruvian, you know, our three main energy centers. And then we're just, and then what came through was to start unpacking our fragility and privilege before we start doing the rest of the wheel, which would be the mother, the father, the child archetypes next. And so I asked you to come and talk about fragility and you had some ideas about some other pieces of, to unpack of the Wikito. Wikito. Yeah. And then I also was thinking the Wapato with the First Nations because I do the Cree work here. Uh-huh. Yeah, so do you want to talk about that, maybe? To start? Sure, definitely. Well, uh, to start off with the serpent, the uh, jaguar, the puma, and the condor, so in Quechua tradition, in the Kero tradition as well, they represent the three realms of existence. And there are so many layers, right? These traditions, they don't work with literal expressions of the things that we engage with in the world, but they see everything in a more symbolic and associative way. So there are many layers to that. And so then serpent represents the ukupacha, the shadow realm. Then the puma, the mountain lion represents the kaipacha and the condor is the kananpacha. And uh, the kaipacha, the mountain lion is our everyday life where we care for each other, where we work together, where we have communities. And then there is the Kanampacha, which is the realm of enlightened ancestors, the bird's eye view, the realm of infinite possibilities. And those three realms, they have to be woven together. They're not separate from each other. So without facing our shadows, we cannot really find that relatedness with each other. If I don't know my own misery, how can I have compassion for the misery of others? Then uh, that allows the power of the heart, right? The mountain lion, the jaguar represents the power of the heart. And so awakening that power of the heart to come together in our daily life with the challenges that we have in our world today. And then through that heart connection, then we can begin to relate to each other and recognize all of the different gifts and qualities that each one of us has. And then through that, we come into the bird's eye view, into the realm of infinite possibilities, the realm of enlightened ancestors, which is that uh, expression, the highest expression of love. 
the work that uh, Joanna is doing is very inspiring to me because it also works with that weaving and bringing, making it real for people and creating the sense of community and relatedness. So I find that to be very beautiful. Then, of course, those three realms of existence, the personal subconsciousness, the consciousness and the collective subconsciousness, we can translate it in that way into our everyday language, into our modern language. And then that also corresponds in the Kyoto tradition to the three main energy centers in our bodies. So then uh, there is the lower energy center in the belly, and this is the, the bowels and the intestines and the place where it's a shadow kind of place where a lot of untransformed energies are being processed and something that may be lingering needs to be let go of. And then there is the heart center, which is the place of our everyday existence, the mountain lion. And uh, that's the place that we engage in reality, through which we engage in reality. So sometimes when people speak about themselves, they point intuitively they point to their chest, right? When I'm asking you something and you say me, are you talking about me, right? So we intuitively point to the center because it has to do with this everyday realm of existence. And then there is the higher realm, the Kanampacha, and that is the forehead, the higher cognitive functions in our lives. And so then of course, those uh, three realms of existence they are also interpreted nowadays with different prophecies that are taking place. So there is the prophecy of the condor and the eagle. And people speak about that prophecy in terms of the eagle in the United States, for example, is the mind and the condor is the heart. And then there's that prophecy uniting the mind and the heart. How can the mind be in service of the heart? How can our Western understanding can be in service of the indigenous cultures, of the ancestral wisdom traditions? And then, of course, the shadow is where a lot of our shadows come from, which is from Europe, right? Where a lot of the Western colonialist mentality has arisen from. And so the reconciliation of that. And then, of course, there is also the part of the Eastern wisdom. And that has to do with unification of all of them together. And the Jungian transpersonal psychology that I've been working with for since before I came to the Amazon for the first time has to do a lot with the Eastern perspectives. And also the Western alchemical view, which also borrowed a lot from the Eastern spiritual practices. And it's that unification, okay, how can we bring all of those three rounds together in a meaningful way? And so each part of the world tradition has retained a certain unique facet in this puzzle that we find ourselves today, in this fragmentation that we're experiencing in the world today, and then how can we really bring all of those pieces of the puzzle together in a meaningful way and see that everyone has their place in the puzzle. In the Kero tradition, I did a series of interviews recently with our dear Kero friends from the Andes. And in the Kero tradition, they have this term for people 
in the modern world who are bridging all those traditions together and it's part of the care of prophecy and they call people like us chakaruna the bridge people and it's part of that prophecy that it is essential to unite and then people in our western world can have that capacity to really help everything come into the unification and help bring that deeper insight and perspective and honoring of the ancestral traditions, not just as some kind of an exponent in a museum, but something that has practical value and can have a very profound impact on the way that our society is today. So did you want to talk about the fragility piece of the next one? So the next, we were going to be in mother was going to be the next archetype. But with um, everything happening with COVID and we live in Portland and, you know, we've had a lot of protests and riots and all of the race work has come through as well as I do a lot of social justice, yoga, community building spaces. And I just wanted everybody to kind of go inward and really understand that we're doing indigenous teachings and, you know, recognizing the privileges we do have here in the West and sort of unpacking that. And we're doing a lot of self-inquiry, not just about race, but just about what's happening, who we are, like unpacking all of those labels and all of the beliefs and all of the perceived values and all of the things that we feel are important. <laughs> um, when our work, like when I was in Peru with you, our work was remembering. I was like, what are you here for? I'm like, here to be. And that's the only thing I was there to do. And the only thing that I did was remember my own medicine, you know, and that is what I hope that people will get this month um, <laughs> while we're unpacking this. The theme was fragility that came through, but it, and, um, you know, death is in that fragility piece. There's a lot of different pieces within that fragility idea, but you have more expansion of that concept. Sure, I can share a little bit of my perspective. On that, I've actually had a recently um, a really fascinating dialogue with um, the psychologists from the Integral Institute, the students of the Integral Institute about police brutality and how can we implement and replace a lot of the police actions with indigenous wisdom and compassion. And it has to do a lot also with fragility, of course, and occidental fragility. And this is a term that is somewhat new to me and I haven't really been living in the United States uh, so much and haven't known about the United States culture. And to me, the fragility is not based on color. And from my experience, I come from a persecuted minority in the ex-Soviet Union and I've lived, I've experienced my life as a, I've been a refugee and have uh, gone through all kinds of uh, turmoils and lived in refugee camps and experienced persecution. And so many people live all around the world that have experienced a lot of struggle, that have gone through a lot of struggle and know what struggle is. So from my understanding, fragility, the accidental fragility, has to do with people who are privileged, who haven't experienced much struggle, and then take it for granted on the account of other people who do experience a lot of struggle, like the people of color and the indigenous people and the people from many persecuted minorities 
who haven't really had a chance to experience the privileges of the Western society of the first world countries. And this part about fragility also has to do, in my experience, with um, this uh, fragility of personality, with getting insulted so easily and getting affected and having this emotional pain body as the main identification in life. And the fragility also has a lot to do with just being in our own bubble as Western society, where there is this bubble where people surround themselves with nice things and circumstances and then pretend that there are no problems in the world. And pretend like everything is fine and nothing has to be done about that. And then, of course, I understand that uh, here in the United States, there are a lot of issues that have been germinating for, for many generations. And those issues do have to be acknowledged and do have to be recognized. And then, of course, uh, that brings up the part about social justice. And the social justice also, in my experience, it has to apply to everyone. It's not like, okay, people who have been living in a bubble can keep living in a bubble. And now we can just throw some perks at other people. But people who are living in the bubble are not accountable. And so there has to be greater accountability that relates to everyone. And then, of course, this also is related to the part of the police reform that I've had that uh, interview on recently and the work that we've been doing for years also in our institute we work with people with severe trauma and we work with people who have experienced abuse including the police abuse and people who have been war veterans and people who have been in high security prisons in isolation. There are some monks that go into solitary confinement and experience enlightenment because they do it willingly and voluntarily and have the right approach and perspective. And in our Western society, it's used as a punishment. Of course, that's also related to this part of fragility, where there, the, the part about accountability. And then, of course, how can that social justice reform take place without education, without children being taught how to work with their emotional intelligence, instead of creating all kinds of scapegoats, and then creating separation and blaming and judging other people just because of their appearance. And so this uh, education in the indigenous traditions, the main focus of education that the indigenous people engaged with is the education about life, how to engage with life, how to live one's life meaningfully, wholeheartedly, how to work with one's own disturbing emotions. Children in our world today, they don't have that. So even before going into the different racial issues and things like that, for me, I think it starts with basic emotional intelligence. So people don't project their shadows on the external environment and learn how to transform their shadows. Otherwise, we can see in every conflict since the beginning of our modern world history, each side 
tends to demonize the other. There is this polarization that is taking place that just creates greater division. And so then the indigenous wisdom goes to the source of that before even the appearance comes into question. How can we engage with everything that we are experiencing? How can we face our shadows and transform them without blaming something else for the things that we cannot deal with in ourselves? So this is a little bit about my perspective on fragility and the work that we are doing that helps to transcend all of the self-imposed limitations and the illusions of appearance that as human species we have created. Thank you. Um, can you talk about what I was tracking was when everything becomes too hard to deal with? You are saying everyone is safe in their bubble, in their privilege, in their spaces. And what I find with when people start doing medicine work, it becomes so much. And it, they almost become like overwhelmed with so many. They start to see their shaman with the third eye, you know, we, we're seers, all of our senses come online and sometimes it becomes too much for people and they want to go off the grid, you know, get rid of all their possessions and live a new way, yet they still have to work and provide for their families and, you know, do be responsible at the same time, you know, navigating those two realms, I find is a real tool that mm. people need right now. Yeah, that's definitely a good point. And this also has to do with this uh, name that I mentioned earlier from our Kero elders, the Chakaruna, the bridge people. So this is where we are today. We cannot just close our eyes and go live in some kind of a bubble. And of course, initially that was my idea. 20 years ago, when I went to the rainforest, I thought I don't like any of this society. And everything that is happening here, I'm just going to run away and live with the indigenous people in the rainforest. And then going into the rainforest and then after three years, my elders have actually directed me to go back into the world and learn how to bridge the worlds. And then after years of reconciling and trying to do that, and then in 2012, my elders from the Yagua nation then uh, they told me okay now you can actually you have enough of that perspective you've had enough experience of bridging the worlds it's been eight years and now you can start to actually share the wisdom of the indigenous people in a way that is relevant in the western world but this is something that we all have to deal with and the indigenous people you know are uh, shipibo elders and uh, recently also we've been engaging with our Shipibo elders and supporting them because, yeah, they have their own life. And I can share a little uh, kind of a scary story. Our Shipibo elder, Matilde, she is an elder and she lived in their original environment and society. And they know a lot about chronic illnesses. But when it comes to certain emergency situations or certain uh, invasive procedures it's not necessarily functioning for them and uh, she had a cataract in her eye for years she had this cataract and then a member of her community told her why don't i take care of that for you 
I can do some medicine work. And she said, sure, okay. So then the member of her community took out a broken shard of glass and tried to remove her cataract with a broken shard of glass and injured her cornea and created scar tissue. And she's been uh, struggling with that for years. And I've been telling her for years, it's important, you know, why don't we actually support you and help you with the eye surgery? Because it's just going to get worse. And she was very afraid because she got traumatized by that initial experience. And recently her daughter reached out to me and said it's getting really bad and severe pain, shooting pain into the brain and she's ready for the surgery. And then we organized around uh, with our community and the different people in our community have supported her and she just went through her surgery successfully. So yesterday was her first day out of surgery now. She has one month to heal, just to be with the eye patch. It's a long healing process. But to me, it kind of represents this situation that we are in the world today where we all have something to contribute to each other. And then, of course, at the same time, in my own situation, I had a terminal incurable in the Western world condition. And then I was able to go to the Amazon rainforest and go into full remission 20 years ago, and I've been in remission ever since. So then I was able to greatly benefit from the indigenous wisdom and the plant medicines and have dedicated my life to reciprocate that benefit and to really see how we can live in this world in a way that is supportive of each other and everything has its place. So it's not like, okay, everything is wrong, about this world and we just have to go and hide in the rainforest and wait until the mining companies and the logging companies and all the pollution destroys the rainforest because that's also kind of a bubble. So there has to be an ability to bring the change from the inside of the system rather than running away from it. And so I feel that that is related to the situation where we can all contribute something. And there is ingenuity in these traditions, in these ancient traditions. They were always based on ingenuity. It's not some kind of a rigid thing that people just blindly follow. It's not dogmatic in nature. It was never meant to be. So each generation in the indigenous societies they had to learn how to apply the indigenous wisdom, how to apply the ancestral perspectives in a way that was relevant to their times. And sometimes the gaps would be quite big between the previous generation and the more modern one. And so the point of, of it is not to make it into an exponent in a museum, but to keep making it relevant, to keep making it practical, to keep applying it to the adversity that we experience in our modern world. And so people, of course, go through the ceremonies and people have been living in this bubble and have so much suppressed content. All of the different repressed emotions and feelings and experiences and not really experiencing life. People live in some kind of a fantasy realm and not experience the hardships of life. And for the indigenous people, the hardships are essential for life. Without challenges, we don't evolve. If everything is comfortable, 
then we just degrade. We degrade morally, we degrade physically, we degrade on so many levels. So challenges are essential in our institute when people come. We have kind of like a more Spartan conditions for life. Very basic. And there is a lot of meaning that people can find in that, of course. And we don't need all of those different things in our modern life. And we can still exist in our modern society, but we don't need a lot of the things that are advertised on TV and shop, 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 and you are who you shop or you are what you shop, right? I saw this kind of billboard at a certain point in New York. So yeah, that kind of mentality is the source of ignorance, but it's not the society itself. It's not the technology. It's not the different applications that we can find in the world today, like the ability to meet like this right now and to share this technology in a more intentional and meaningful way. So really, how can we, instead of avoiding and implementing this spiritual materialism and bypass on the next level, where, okay, I don't want to face my problems in society, so I'm going to run away. It doesn't work. After a while, everything comes up. Wherever you go, there you are. So I find that, uh, yeah, it's good to have that perspective. Awesome. Thank you so much. Can you talk about the land lineage and teachings of the land? Um, I feel for me, I've been studying with the First Nations for the last 15 years. And I feel like if everybody learned the teachings of the land that we live on, the land that we were born in, and connecting to the land in a new way, and the teachings of the original people of the land, we would have a different perspective of how we treat our land and what we build on our land and how we navigate our land. I was with a shaman a couple of weeks ago and we walked through to this big, huge uh, cypress tree and it is from 1880s and it was bigger than the house that was behind it. And I said, mm -hmm. wouldn't it be amazing if this whole neighborhood was all these trees? She said, we would be different people. <laughs> the tree is yeah bigger than a house and it has a sign because it now it's a sacred tree that can't be cut down but we were just thinking what would we be like if we were those from that time when we didn't cut down these trees and what if we all had these trees and we lived on that land in that way so mm. can you talk about maybe what you do on your land and how you guys as Palpatiti connects with the land and the indigenous teachings of the land in Peru Mm, beautiful. Yeah, I love that perspective. Nature and people are inseparable. So since beginningless times, people have been living in nature. And people have been experiencing themselves to be a part of nature. And of course, being in nature, naturally our mood changes. Our presence becomes more whole. And this is something that in our land also we see that it's not like, okay, for the land right now, there's a lot of talk about preservation of reserves and uh, all kinds of uh, different ecological initiatives. And at the same time, with this Western mentality of fragmentation, not seeing people to be part of it. Okay, we're just going to put a fence around this area and call it a reserve and not have anyone go there. That's, it was never that way. 
So the indigenous people, they were the stewards of the land. They were the caretakers of the land. And the land was caretaking for them. The land was perceived to be the Pachamama, the symbol of unconditional love. She's always here to support us. She's always here to provide for us. And then we can reciprocate that. It's essential to offer ourselves, to offer our love to the land. And in that way, we can keep caring for each other. And so in our perspective of preservation, also it's really empowering the native people who live on those lands to keep caretaking for those lands, to have everything they need so they can continue doing that instead of escaping to the cities where they can provide for their families or being, having all of those pesticides and chemical fertilizers that the government provides for free and then the land gets degraded. And then people are no longer able to feed themselves of the land. So how can we really bring that empowerment to the people? The mentality of a lot of the NGOs today is just, you see a problem, just throw money at it. And then that creates a begging mentality. That creates a disempowerment where people cannot really rejoice in their own abilities, in their own talents and skills and potentials and have that community surrounding them that can continue that re reciprocate relationship. So again, in Quechua and also Quechua, which is the Amazonian dialect of Quechua, there is a term Aini, the right relationship with life, with each other, with the elements, with the land. Without that, life is not possible. Even when astronauts go into space, they have to take a miniature version of the ecosystem with them. They have their oxygen, they have their food, and without that, we cannot exist. And then at the same time, this oxygen, this food, is something that has to do with human connection, with our relatedness to each other, with our ability to care for each other and the environment that we live in. So this land, and the indigenous people, you know, when I first came 20 years ago and I lived with the Yagua nation and with the Witoto people and the Ashura people, they were living in this pristine environment in the rainforest. And they were embodying that organic intelligence. The elders, they were literally glowing all the time. And then I was witnessing, I witnessed also how accidental culture came in and how the government came in and uh, sometimes did forced sterilizations for women and imposed all kinds of different rules and regulations and gave people pharmaceuticals in exchange of people abandoning their culture. And then people started to get away from that original environment. And then intuitively they were maintaining that glow when they were in the rainforest. And then when they left the rainforest, they did not have enough awareness to maintain that afterwards. And at the same time, we are nature. We forget that when we are outside of the natural environment, but each one of us is nature. The organic intelligence is flowing through our organism. And so to really see that 
this is something that we can bring our awareness is this union of the mind and the heart that we started our conversation with. How can we bridge that gap so that we don't only experience right now, we live in the world where we live in cities and people live in big cities where nature is not so available. And at the same time, we can utilize a lot of that ancestral wisdom to bridge the mind and the heart together and invoke that connection with nature no matter where we are. And so the Yagua Nation, that's, that was also part of my relationship with them because they saw that it's so necessary today because they're taken out of the natural environment. They can no longer live in the original way where they would have this vast, vast, spaces in the rainforest and they would do crop rotation. They would plant in one place and then after a while that place needed to rest and revitalize and then they would plant somewhere else and then they would plant somewhere else and today the government gave them a little plot of land and they can no longer do that. And then a lot of their children and their families they have to engage in all kinds of activities, including touristic shows and go to the city and work and uh, be looked down upon. And then not being able to continue that original way and needing to maintain their heritage, their ancestral wisdom under all circumstances, under this rapidly changing geo-social environment that we are in today. It's this situation that is unprecedented in the world. And so at the same time, there is this ancestral wisdom that can guide us in maintaining that original state of being, like what you shared, Rana, this remembrance, mm -hmm. to recognize that we are always connected to that. Our Shipibo friends, they say, we're all children of the Mother Earth. That makes all of us indigenous to Mother Earth. But most of us have forgotten about that. So how can we remember that connection? How can we honor that beyond the different rituals and appearances and really get to the essence of it? That's a good question. Do you have an answer for it? <laughs> How can we? <laughs> we're, all living, we're all living answers. And yeah. there is continuously depth to that. But yeah, it's, there is this story about a young person coming to an elder and saying, well, what is the purpose of life? What is the meaning of life? And the elder looked at them and he said, such a magnificent question. Why ruin it with an answer? Awesome, thank you. Did you want to talk about the Wicato underlaying nature? It's not really a shadow, it's different. Mm -hmm. It's a disease, it's an epidemic. The way that the indigenous people view it is that it is an epidemic. It's a viral epidemic that has taken over the world. And it is continuing to do that on more and more gross levels of our existence. Sounds familiar, right? 
the indigenous people they view it as this disease of, of forgetfulness forgetting the reciprocity forgetting the interconnectedness forgetting relatedness and just uh, becoming this isolated egocentric bubbles very self-absorbed not caring about anyone or anything not even about this very organism that we are living in people who live with all kinds of instant gratifications not seeing that actually this life that we are given is here to be a gift to the world to be of benefit to the world and then people who live just for their own sake that's too much energy for just one person to deal with and then it becomes detrimental so the vetico how it's viewed in the northern hemisphere is this disease of forgetfulness and then of course remembering ourselves as channels of the universe the remembering ourselves as the channels between the earth and the sun the heaven and the earth and for the indigenous people as i already shared it has a deep symbolic meaning where the earth represents that unconditional love of mother nature that is latent in all of us we are all capable of awakening that in ourselves and then the father son represents the bright light of consciousness and then it's that love relationship between the mother earth and the father son the incitaita and the pachamama where the light of the consciousness is continuously immersing itself into greater and greater depths of unconditional love and the indigenous people also see it as the purpose of our lives to continuously fall more and more deeply in love with this world with mother nature with essential humanity in all of us and in all of nature and so the remembrance process has to do with remembering of oneself as a channel of energy and that includes all of the problems in our lives all of the different anxieties and the stress and the fear and the anger those are all expressions of life force those are all energies and through our conditioning we tend to judge it we make them into shadows there is this inhibition of those life energies or reaction based on them and then the process is to remove all of the different labels and to see okay this anger that we're experiencing actually if i can direct this anger towards something useful in my life like physical hard labor build a house dig a hole in the ground right then that energy is connected to the heart it's no longer something that is isolated from it and that connects us back of course to the relationship with the earth people who live in our modern environment they're often not connected and then they cannot experience the raw feelings and emotions and how they can be directed and guided in a way that is honoring the heart so the vetico is this disease that we are all infected with to a degree 
when first conquistadors arrived in the Amazon, the people did not blame them for the havoc that they were wrecking. The people said, no, they are sick. They have this disease. They've been infected with it. The early people in Europe, the Celtics, the Druids, the people who were connected with nature, they were very much on the same wavelength with the indigenous people. And then many of them got persecuted. All kinds of different dogmas have come in. And women were burned on the stakes. That created a lot of wounding in people. And then that wounding then just kept going. And then, of course, it keeps going today, even to some of the indigenous people that I know, where they just become so angry, so upset. And then, okay, what happens when we start to hate the haters? We become what we fight against. We become infected with the same disease. All of the elders and my dear friends that I've had over the years, including from the Lakota nation, for them to really approach this issue, to eliminate it at its root, it's essential to be warriors of love, to not forget how to stay centered in the heart, to keep honoring that under all circumstances. Because otherwise, this sickness is sweeping the world. So for the indigenous people, they say that when this original state of relatedness, to go beyond appearances, that's another thing. With my elders, they didn't care how people appeared that came to them, whether people were from their own culture. They looked into the book of life in people's eyes. They read the book of life. That's what they do. That's the book for them. They look beyond the appearance and they see, well, what is your soul like? What are you honoring in your life? What do you stand for? It doesn't matter how sick you are. What matters is the willingness to heal. And that's the evolutionary healing in these traditions, to remember oneself as the channel of love and to recognize love in so many different expressions of it. And then to be in that fierce love that honors life, that is not living in a reactive way, but proactive way for the indigenous people. When we live our life unconsciously, this energy of life that we are channeling becomes destructive. When we live our lives consciously, it becomes creative. And of course, either way, it's love. If I live my life in this unconscious way, then I gradually create more and more detriment to my own organism. And then eventually I become compost for another life form to grow from. Yet the evolutionary science of the ancestors is really about consciousness and seeing how through consciousness, creativity arises and this energy becomes healing in our lives. And it's through consciousness, then we can be healthy and in service to the greater whole. And then, of course, it's finding that bridge. How can we reconcile instead of keep creating all kinds of divisions and conflicts in our world? 
then what can we do to really reconcile the the differences? It's okay, yeah, we have differences, obviously. But the point is to really maintain love through the differences. And we work also with the Tibetan tradition. I actually started working with the Tibetan lineage before I came to the Amazon for the first time 20 years ago. And uh, there are great examples of that. There was a case when this Christian priest was talking to Dalai Lama and finding a lot of similarities and saying, oh, it's so similar, it's so similar, it's all the same. And Dalai Lama said, no. He said, it's not all the same. There are differences. And it's important to recognize the differences and still stay friends and still be loving through the deal. It's easy to love each other when everything is the same, right? That includes the political party affiliations and things like that. It's easy to love each other when everything is the same. But to maintain that love, and of course, it doesn't mean to just succumb to all kinds of useless ideologies and outdated paradigms, but to maintain that fierce love and compassion because ignorance is something that we all share to different degrees, but it's something that we all have and it's at the source of all suffering. And that relates to vetico, the forgetfulness, the ignorance. What are we ignoring in our lives? Or pretending that it's not there. Exactly. It could be there. It's uncovering that unconscious material that you don't even know that it's there yet, which mm -hmm. is what we do in this practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very much so. And so what I, when you said Wetiko, and then I went to the Wendigo and then to the hungry ghosts in the Tibetan Buddhism or in mm -hmm. the Buddhism. So that hungry ghost that's always hungry and never fulfilled. When I did my Buddha's teachings or practice, it was um, a really small mouth with a really big belly. And mm -hmm. you will never feel full enough because your mouth is too small that it cannot eat enough food to fill up, fill you up ever. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that is part of what is going on here in the North, in North America is that consumption of things that are unhealthy and feeling the need to fulfill something, but it will never be fulfilled because the belly is so big and empty, right? <laughs> Yeah, definitely very much relates actually in the Vetiko, in the Lakota tradition, when this Vetiko was identified, they said that it's based on greed. When the colonists came, it was very much all based on greed. And then out of greed came anger and all kinds of different envy, jealousy, and including fear fear of not being able to fill oneself up. And in the Tibetan tradition, the hungry ghost, it relates to the emotion of envy, of jealousy, and the greed that comes from that, right? So they're all interconnected. And this uh, feeling the void, trying to fill the void. This is a popular dynamic in our western world our whole entertainment system is based on that and people are trying to fill the void in so many ways and never able to do that and it's this 
void of spiritual connection and trying to substitute it with material values that will never work then of course this void if we look at buddhist perspective the void is the emptiness the emptiness of inherent solid separate self and it's not just any emptiness but it's this illusion that we have that there is me that is separate from everyone else and then it's just me 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 and it's an illusion and then trying to make this illusion real and it never can happen and so then trying to fill the void and then just going through more and more distorted intricate ways to do that and it's this capricious ego this idea of self that is separated from everyone else and then the ego becomes the master so in the indigenous traditions the ego is not the problem and in buddhism as well the ego is not the enemy it's the conditioning this conditioned ego that is very rigid and inflexible and the whole world has to revolve around it and as a capricious master it's never satisfied and it's always upset then this work of remembrance is remembering of oneself as a humble servant of the greater whole and that's a big turnaround it's a 180 degree turnaround from being a capricious master to become a humble servant and where the capricious master is never satisfied the humble servant is actually fulfilled because there is a greater purpose that is being served that you can wholeheartedly stand for and that is not easy this transformation this resolution of conditioning and the recognition that the emptiness that people are trying to feel their whole life is actually the spaciousness of the heart and then people are trying to avoid feeling the heart with all kinds of circumstances in life and try to block it and avoid and ignore where in reality it's this tender spaciousness of the heart that is the emptiness and instead of feeling it instead of trying to feel the void actually making friends with the void recognizing the spaciousness and how essential it is we've just been going through that in a taoist approach from through our qigong the alchemy of immortality qigong that it's the spaciousness that is useful in our lives yeah the structure is beneficial we have this structure but then if we don't honor the spaciousness that allows us to open up to the world that allows us to include other people in ourselves in our lives that is very vital and so then it's the spaciousness that uh, has to do with relatedness and the interconnectedness it's the spaciousness and the emptiness that is not empty but filled with the whole world so how can we open ourselves up to the world around us and that also has to do with the resolution of this disease of forgetfulness of becoming the separate bubble and then the bubble is being popped all the time and that brings all kinds of dramas 
um, so when you said about the ego and the superego in a lot of the training that I've done previously, not my belief now, but is to kill the superego, smash it, kick it, go against it and fight against it. And really the superego is bigger than us. And what my medicine that I uncovered was to I would prefer to befriend the superego, find out what does it have to teach me? Why is it there? What is it saying? And more, I'm a more curious and inquisitive um, mm -hmm. personality, I guess. And so I find doing the opposite and same with, you know, superstition and calling in thinking that these things are hunting us. We need to protect ourselves. Um, all these entities are coming to get us. It's all of the similar belief system. And it comes around in a lot of shamanic circles, you know, that superstition. And it, I had to detox and <laughs> superstition was a big thing for me. And if you can kind of share with what your belief is about the ego, the super ego, superstition, um, leaving that in. Sure. sure, I can say a few things about that. So this uh, disease, right, that we're talking about, and this uh, disease, and it has to do with the conditioning, the conditioned ego. And in the indigenous traditions, the ego is not the enemy. Again, the ego is an essential part of our lives. Without the ego, we cannot talk, we cannot walk, we cannot do the basic functions, we cannot uh, relate with each other, we cannot live in a human society. So the ego is essential. We cannot, if we kill the ego, we are not able to function. Life will not exist. But the, the thing is to decondition, to transform the ego from the capricious master to humble servant. And that has to do with our personality. The ego is our personality in these traditions. So then instead of having this rigid personality of I like things to be only my way, and I like it to be a certain way, and I'm a control freak, and everything is very rigid. So then the, the process is to soften. The process is to become more fluid, become more flexible, so that I can actually adapt to the world around me, so I can work with the circumstances and the situations, so I can find that bridge with other people in my life. And then it's not important who is more right but it's important that there is this connection of the heart that is maintained and then the disease in this indigenous traditions is a radically different view from the western perspective where the disease has to be eliminated destroyed cut away poisoned at any price even at the price of the life of the patient and in the indigenous traditions they view diseases as mothers when you get sick, it's the mother of that disease that is becoming pregnant with you. And then you go back into the womb of the mother because you have wandered away from the right relationship with life. And the disease is there to let you know, okay, go back into the womb. Remember what it means to be human. Remember essential human qualities. How can I be more tender with myself? How can I be more patient, more compassionate? How can I have more consistency and determination in my life? And then through those essential human qualities, the healing process takes place. And it's a very different perspective than how it's approached in the Western society, where there is this war on disease, the war on cancer. 
And in these traditions, it doesn't work that way because the disease is the conditioning. And the conditioning is the cocoon of the butterfly, right? Without the cocoon, the caterpillar cannot turn into the butterfly. So it's up to us to really acknowledge the conditioning in our lives and honor it and then bring love through that process. Yeah, we all have to be young and stupid in order to become old and wise, right? And so it's all part of that process and it's essential to accept, to see that it's not about right or wrong. Wrong can never become right. But if we see that ignorance is potentially already wisdom, and instead of trying to make the ignorance bad and waging war on it, then to actually embrace and love the ignorance so that essential lessons can be learned from it. And it's natural for each child to want to evolve, right? You just give the child love and they want to learn. They want to, it's not something that has to be forced upon them. So that's the perspective of the conditioned ego and the deconditioning. And yeah, definitely there is a lot of superstition going around and it's also based on ignorance. People don't know any better and then just have all this fear and I need to separate myself more and I have to create all of these protections and defense mechanisms. But in our indigenous tradition, the healing circle, the, the heart, the love is the greatest power. In our Tibetan Buddhist lineage, also, the best defense is complete openness. It's like the radiance of the sun. If I am closed and I'm shielded and then I constantly have to fend off the onslaught of the unknown, it's very exhausting. But if I can open up completely and let the heart radiate forth, then it becomes like the sun. The sun has this natural aura of light around it, not because it's so protective, but because it's so open. So yeah, I resonate with the way that you approach it very much. And I actually, when people do, clients or friends or family, somebody does come down with an illness, I do go in and befriend it and find out what does it have to teach us? Why mm -hmm. is it here? what is the medicine and i feel like the antidote is to befriend it instead of to fight against it yes do whatever medicines you need to do but on the energetic level i feel like for me that's how i get to the um get to the inside of it the answer is within it, it why is it here yeah that's very instrumental that's one of the problems that i have with our allopathic medicine today where 99% of all diseases are considered to be idiopathic. There is no known cause. And what does that do? That creates a lot of fear in the population. Oh, I can get sick at any moment without any reason, completely randomly, and there is no meaning to it. And I'm very afraid. Somebody save me. Right? And then the whole population is living in fear and that just lowers the immune system and people get more and more sick because the message is to find your own purpose, your own meaning, to see that it's not random. In the indigenous perspective, no disease is random. And then when you live in that way, you're empowered. 
you don't have to constantly be afraid for your life that some kind of a virus can come in from behind any corner at any moment. And so then, of course, we do have to take precautions and we do have to take care of ourselves and our health. But then to recognize that love is essential for healing. And then all of the diseases, they are reminding us to come back into the womb of the Great Mother to remember that unconditional love under all circumstances. And so to me, it was a very essential, instrumental part of my own healing process. When I came to the Amazon with my illness in the intestines, and yeah, for the worst part of my illness, you know, my illness was quite severe and I would uh, be on the floor in agonizing pain every other day for 10 years before I came to the Amazon. But the worst part of the disease was not the physical pain. The worst part of the disease was not knowing why I was going through that, not having any meaning or any purpose. Why am I experiencing that? What is the purpose of it? That was the worst part of it, worse than any physical pain. So yeah, so it's good to have that perspective in our world today that is so fear-based in our society and this constant fear-mongering on the news channels and everything. And yeah, that's the message, is to awaken from the illusion of fear. I mean, at least that's how I see it. Thank you. Do you think that disease comes more from a trauma? or from our forgetting our true nature or both i guess a combination <laughs> yeah i think you answered you answered your question or i answered it it comes from both both a trauma yeah. i find that a lot of people are sick because they've had a bunch of traumas like stacked on top of each other at one particular time in their life and it's really hard to get through all of those traumas you know it's just not one thing it's like they got fired from their job or their business got taken away they lost their house you know their family was being broken up by divorce or some sort of a separation and a family member dies you know it's a lot of things all together at one time and then how to navigate through that because at that time they have the traumas and then they've also forgotten and so like what would be a good tool yeah. to remember yeah, the have a bigger trauma like that right yeah and sometimes you know the darkest hour is right before the sunrise and the disease the trauma the forgetfulness they all come you know hand in hand and the disease in these traditions where we see everything as energy moving through us then the disease is this crystallized energy certain experience that I was not able to process. I was not able to transform or engage with a certain situation in my life. And why was I not able to do that? Because I was not trusting in the unconditional nature of the heart. And then all of these unprocessed experiences, they're covered by the scar tissue, this rigid scar tissue that becomes our personality, our identity. But within that scar tissue, within that hardened scar tissue, it's protecting something so tender and so innocent that did not find a place in this harsh world. 
And so then we are all born with this innocence into the world, but then we live in a world that is not so supportive of it. For the indigenous people, the innocence is the greatest power, the childlike essence. And then living in a world where we do not see an affirmation of that innocence in the world around us, and then we are conditioned to hide it. It has no place in this world. It makes me vulnerable. It makes me a target, right? It's part of this modern mentality that if I am vulnerable and innocent and open, somebody can take advantage of me. Somebody can harm me. And truly so, it can often happen in this society that we live in. And that brings us back to the part I spoke about initially in terms of the education, how in our society there is no education of emotional intelligence. There is no affirmation that this tender innocence that we all have, it's the seed of the fierce, loving, and unconditional love. Just like in a deer, when a deer is born, I rescued a deer and my son became friends with him for a few weeks, about a year ago. But when a deer is born, the horns of the deer, they're so soft and so tender. But when the deer grows up, they become very strong and the deer can protect the life, its own life and the life of its children. And the same thing with this innocence. If we really honor that innocence in ourselves and each other, if we care for it, if we support it, then that innocence grows up into the fierce love of the compassionate heart. And then that same innocence can actually be protective of the real values in our world. So there's a lot more, of course, to trauma and disease. And we work with that quite deeply in, in our retreats in Peru. And still it's just an, like our months long retreats, they're still an introduction because it just goes so deep and it's a lifelong journey. But it's something that we can all participate consciously in and continue to encourage and create intentional communities like you're doing here and continue to support each other and encourage that essence. And, and then gradually recognizing those scar tissues and that in the center of each disease there is a great love waiting to be discovered that's also a perspective that is shared by the traditional chinese medicine and also by the amazonian people where the disease is the mother yeah um i'm trying to figure out how to weave this into the next piece that i had about well, when we work with our shaman energetic medicine, the Peruvian lineage, and we do, let's going in back into the soul, working on the level of the soul is mostly the work we do and go back to the trauma. And we bring back those soul pieces that were before the trauma, bringing back that piece that, because we're born perfect. We're born mm -hmm. a perfect, bright, shiny light. And it's all the things that happen in society that come through and take away those lights. Or we don't know how to, like you said, the emotional intelligence, we don't know how to regulate it. We don't know. And it can just be, it could be a big trauma and it can be a little trauma, the big T and the little T's. And I find with some people, when they do some soul retrievals and some soul work and go back into those those woundings and clear them 
but for some reason they still want to keep bringing those back you know going back to that wounding they can't release it completely it's almost like they're holding and grasping onto it and keeping those stories live in their bodies and even though it's been helped to move through they still don't have the toolbox to get through it but they're in it forever <laughs> do you have anything that you can share about that sure yeah so the remembrance part is very essential right so yeah we can focus a lot on the resolution of the problems but if we don't engage with what's underneath the problems then it's going to be very hard because then it's just going to be okay there is this dark tunnel and there's no light behind it and the remembrance piece it's the remembrance actually if you look into the original translation in Buddhism as well. The term mindfulness that is so popular today, it was never part of it. Actually, what they call mindfulness is translated from the original language as remembrance. Because it's not mindful of everything, of every little thing. It's mindful of that original, tender, innocent openness of our primordial true nature. So, and that relates to the remembrance piece of the indigenous people as well. So then to even have a glimpse of that can allow more transformation and healing than all the tools in the world that let people work through trauma. So just this one glimpse of that original state. And this is why the sacred plant ceremonies can be so helpful because they can provide the direct experience of your own truth. The truth in these traditions is not some kind of a philosophical concept. It's a direct experience of being that is beyond limitations, that is open, that is supported. And we talked about that in terms of the child in the mother's womb, where there is complete support, complete nurture. Everything is provided. There is peacefulness, not a worry in the world. And that memory is the original memory. And then we are born into this world that is not so unconditional. And unconsciously, everyone are longing to return into that original, spacious, open love. It's embedded on, a, on the cellular level. We work with that in our breathwork classes, which are also a helpful way to tune in into that. And so then, yeah, of course, we accumulate a lot of layers of conditioning, of trauma on top of that. And often not even remembered. It's just a blind spot. It has been buried so deep and so then to remember that can actually allow for the transformation to take place. Otherwise, I, I experience that if people are not ready, then it's, it's just torture for them. They just keep going and keep at it and trying to work through their trauma and through their limitations and through the problems. And it's not happening. And they may have a glimpse once in a while, but the 
momentum, the power of the habit is so strong that it takes them right out of it. And that's why consistency and perseverance on this path are so essential. And then, of course, having those glimpses, many positive reaffirming experiences that allow us to trust the true nature. Many, it's considered even having one is already enough of a motivation to step on the path. And then in these traditions, it's geared towards having many, many, many positive reaffirming experiences because it's so easy to forget. I know for myself, I'm an amnesiac. And that's why I surround myself with all of these tools, these traditions, these practices that can keep reminding me to keep returning to that essence, to keep trusting in that essence. Otherwise, the conditioning just takes over. I don't have to do much <laughs> for, the, for the conditioning to take over. But I do have to transform and put a lot of effort into keep coming back to the essence. And then the mind is so tricky, right? This conditioned ego, it's kind of like this mind parasite where it will try to dissuade me. Because that in coming out of it will mean the death of this illusory self that I believe in so much. I make it real by believing in it. And then it doesn't want to let go. And then it tells me, no, don't even try. Look, you've been on this path for so many years. You've been doing this work and nothing is happening. You're right back where you started. Just give up. Give up right now. Don't even try. And then the same voice will confirm itself in my head. Yes, I should just give up. I shouldn't try. And it plays these tricks, right? It's this illusion. It plays tricks on us. And it's very intricate because it has taken so long to create. We've invested so much time and effort in creating this elaborate self-deception that it just keeps going. And so then it takes a lot of effort and a lot of willingness and discernment to pierce through this veil of illusion that we ourselves have created because of not knowing any better. And then, of course, there are all kinds of hidden perks to that. When I was sick with my illness, I could just, I was diagnosed when I was 12 years old. And then that gave me an excuse whenever I didn't want to go to school, even if I felt fine, all I had to say that I'm sick today and then I got a free pass. So the, the, there is this kind of, this avoidance of responsibility, not wanting to take my life in my own hands and having all kinds of benefits that I can just blame my disease for it and I can get out of all kinds of situations and not be accountable for them. And then of course, it's also part of the evolution. Okay, at a certain point, I could no longer bear it. It was the darkest point. And then I had to start taking responsibility for my life or become compost. The choice was in my hands. Thank you. So my last topic, so I think I'll go another five minutes. Mm -hmm. This is a bigger topic, so it might not fit, <laughs> but let's see how we can do it. Um, so when I was first started learning Peruvian energetic medicine about 15 years ago, I was taught that it was here, it was gifted to us because they saw 
the elders, the Caro elders in Peru saw that it's time to come down the mountain and share it with the Western world. And it was a vision. And my experience working with them here and in Peru is they have a pure heart and everything comes from gifting and sharing and they want the teachings to go around the world and to be shared openly. It's not a secret. It's not something to be held um, and hidden anymore. Right. So, and how can people connect with that energy and know that they're, they have the rights to work this medicine. They have the tools, they have it within our own selves by remembering it as well. Can you mm -hmm. expand a bit from your experiences of working with the elders? Mm -hmm. Yeah, very much so. So the elders, they speak through this language of dreams, the language of nature, the language of symbols and associations. It's a poetic language. And the ceremonies, the structure of the different rituals is also based on that language. And of course, the problem is that people in the West, they just go through the monkey motions and trying to imitate the appearance without getting to the essence of it, without seeing how all of it is pointing to that essential humanity within us, to those archetypal qualities the aspects and the facets of our being that relate to the unconditional nature. And then if we can engage with that kind of attitude and perspective, then we can get through the cultural differences. We can get through all of the appearances and not just go through the motions, but see what it really means. And that's the, a lot of the work that I'm engaged in in our institute is to really get through the appearances and get to the essence. It's not just doing the motions or the Qigong postures or drinking the medicine, but it's really about seeing what does it mean in our everyday life, how life itself can become a ceremony. And in that way, we can really practice it. We can make it real. It's up to each one of us to make it real. Instead of trying to look good or trying to belong or get some kind of a confirmation but to really get real, okay, I have those challenges. I'm really challenged, right? And Buddhism suffering is the first noble truth. It doesn't mean that we beat ourselves up, but it means that we have to acknowledge that not everything is fine in our lives. And if we don't acknowledge the problems, then how can we ever reconcile them? And so then with that motivation, then those lineages, they become real. Without it, it's just an appearance it's a show and so the real meaning of the elders they try to share it in the way that they know how and it's through this more ancient language of symbols and associations and symbolic gestures that come through the rituals and the ceremonies but then the real point is not to leave it there not to make it a secluded practice from my everyday life, but to bridge the gap and then to integrate it and to make it relevant and to face the issues, right? That's the main point of this ancestral teachings is to allow the human spirit to shine in the face of adversity. And then our modern society is all based on avoiding the adversity. Let's pretend that it's not there. Let's take a magical pill. 
let's go somewhere else. And then people in, even engage the indigenous traditions with that mentality. And then it becomes unhealthy. But if we get real, if we have that willingness to face the challenges, the issues in our lives, not to run away, not to beat ourselves up, and then to fail over and over and over and over again, and then to learn how to fail better. <laughs> and then transform and learn. That's how children learn. They fall so many times before they learn how to walk. And we tend to forget that in relation to our other challenges. Definitely, thank you. <laughs> it's like there's the saying, the, the master has failed more times than the student has tried. Yeah, I really liked your reading that, or I read your article, um, your blog about teachers. Mm -hmm. And I had, I could really relate to that because I had a lot of very strict teachers who treated me similarly that you were treated. You know, every single time I came to make the fire for our ceremony for our lodge every Friday, I did it wrong every, every week. It was like, you're using the wrong rocks. You're using the wrong wood. That's the wrong way. And I'm like, I'm doing it exactly the same way that you told me to last week. Now it's different every single time. And for about five years that I made the fire for our ceremony, it was wrong. So I had to, I had to just keep moving through it and learn that new way of doing it every single time I showed up. And eventually I learned the trust. I'm okay to just make the fire by myself, but it took a long time to learn that toolbox right? Of just being, okay, I'm going to listen and not defend and say, hey, you, you told me to do it this way last time. No, I just had to go, okay, let me learn this new way of doing it this time. And let me learn the next new way of doing it. Let me learn, and that reminds me of the child falling down. You know, it's like, let me learn the new way of doing this. It's not just one way. This medicine world is a new way that you're learning every single piece that you learn, at least that I learned so far. And it also breaks through all of those rigid layers of the personality, right? That's how these traditions are gearing us towards. So it's not about this kind of touristic um, approach, consumerist approach, where I just wanna be told how special I am, but to really get through that and open up and not take things so personally and not be so fragile and to find the strength of the heart, which is how those traditions were originally meant to be practiced, okay, you have to have a real motivation. And then the teachers would test people if they have a real motivation or they're just doing it for some kind of uh, self-absorbed purpose. Or working, I say it's working on their spiritual resume. Mm -hmm, absolutely off. okay i went to the sweat lodge i did ayahuasca i learned how to smudge i did you know xyz and it's like that's not what it's about it's not being a tourist in the spiritual realms and then you're actually an empty vessel when you're mm -hmm. navigating the world it's about for me it's about navigating the worlds and integrating them into a daily world into my daily practice into my daily navigation of whatever I'm going to do that day, but how can I do it in the relationships of what I've learned and experienced throughout the teachings and meanings? Um, yeah, very much so. Yeah, very much agree. Thank you. Thank you so much, Roman, for talking with our circle and sharing all of your ancestral wisdom with us. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much, everyone. And I feel that uh, everything that's happening globally, we can all contribute our own piece 
of our own heart and continue to channel love to help the situation transform. And I feel this is so essential to really direct our consciousnesses and keep our frequency high and continue to open up and relate and share. And in that way, I feel that that's the critical mass consciousness that uh, will change the world beyond everything else. It's, uh, the power is in each of our hearts and minds and actions. And then that can become a wave of transformation. So yeah, I also really appreciate the conversation today and Joanna, I'm really grateful for you to keep bringing these subjects up. I know these are not easy subjects to bring up and it's something that is bubbling through the collective and I really honor you for being brave and bringing it up in your community and continue to share in this way. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. If you have found value in what we have shared, we welcome donations in order to continue this service. To make a donation or to ask a question, visit our website at www.paititi-institute.org. That's www.paititi-institute.org. May all beings be happy and free.